Hebrews chapter 4 as we work our way through the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Read ahead the last chapter of Luke, the last section of Luke for this Sunday, and then read ahead into chapter 1 of the book of Revelation. Hebrews 4 tonight. Let's dive into it. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come fallen short. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, that's the children of Israel, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for our night, Lord, we thank you for technology, Lord, that we can use it to communicate. Uh, and so, Lord, we just thank you for those serving in the back in youth ministry and children's ministry. Lord, we just pray that you'd bless this weekend as well, uh, Lord, that the weather would be good on Sunday. And, Lord, that it would just be a time of refreshing as well. So, Father, thank you again for our fellowship, our worship, and now time in your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Turn back to the last chapter, chapter 3, pick it up in verse 18, get a running start. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who did not obey? And so we see that they could not enter because of unbelief. That is the point that ties him into the therefore, the end of chapter 3 and this section. So unbelief, God takes very seriously. And it is as simple as this. Don't get bogged down by this, by this topic of rest, because we're going to hear rest through this entire chapter. But it is simply this. The children of Israel did not enter into the promised land because they had unbelief. Remember that they sent in the 12 spies. Only two of them had a good report, said, man, our God is huge. We can just whoop on those guys. They're like grasshoppers. And our God has the power to do that. Well, the 10 swayed the rest of the nation. Over 2 million plus people had unbelief. Therefore, they did not enter into the rest. That, that takes us into verse 1. Therefore, since... A promise remains of entering his rest. Let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Now, all through the Bible, we've been talking about this. We even talked about this on Sunday. The Bible tells us not to fear, right? All Everywhere. And yet right here it says what? Uh, be afraid. And the idea is don't get caught in the same uh, stumbling block that they got when they were entering into the promise. Fear that you don't fall into the same place of unbelief. Amen? Real simple. Don't go into that same place of unbelief. Notice it says, coming short of. It, it, it's like, it's right there. But at the end, you decide, man, that, that's huge. Those obstacles are large. I can't, I can't do it. And yet, God said, hey, don't fall into that trap as well. Verse 2, for indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Now, I want to talk about this, but I want you to see that 
which they heard, but it didn't profit them. Do you know you can hear all kinds of what, what we would say, air quotes, religion? You can come to church, hear it all. But some people, it will not help them change their life because they don't want to believe in the power that is there. We have heard that, I'm sorry, we have heard the promises of God's rest just like the children of Israel did. They heard the word, but they did not, and it did not profit them because it wasn't received with faith. And that's how he says it was mixed with faith. We have had the good news preached to us, the good news of eternal life through faith in Christ. We know that. The the Israelites also had the good news preached to them, the good news of rest in the land of Canaan, but it did not benefit them because they were not able to enter into it. Listen, when does it become ours? When is, if I've got a gift up here on a table for you, it's got your name on it. When is it yours? When you come and you receive it, you go back to your seat and you take it. It's not, it's not yours until you receive it. By faith you have to. By faith the Israelites missed the opportunity. Think about that. And their children entered into the promised land as we're going to see the rest that God had for them through Joshua instead of Moses. Verse 3, 4. We have believed, I'm sorry, for we who have believed do enter that rest, as he said, so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the earth. Faith is the key that opens up the door here. That's what God is trying to tell these Hebrews who are thinking about going back into Judaism. Now think about that. Again, always got to remind ourselves that's what's happening. So he's going to say, if if your forefathers could not enter into the rest, why do you think going back into that is a good idea? When in Jesus, by the end of the chapter, we're going to see this. In Jesus, we have our rest. So why would you go back to the inferior We're reading this in 2021, right? See, I got the year right this time. And we take for granted that we've read the Bible. They don't know that, guys. They have to be taught all of this. And they have to be reminded, don't go back to the works-based system of Judaism because there is no rest there. The rest is believing in Christ and his finished work upon the cross. Amen? Isn't that good to know? We're going to talk about that. How frustrating. Maybe you've, and I'll I'll just get you ready for this, but how many of you were in the state before in your walk with God where you still thought you you had to work yourself into your relationship with God, that somehow God was more well-pleased with you because you did X, Y, and Z? Think about this. We are the only group on planet Earth that are not works-based. Do you know that? Islam is workspace. You got to do this, this, and this. Mormonism, this, this, and this. Hinduism, all these chanting. Every, we're the only group that the, the way to be blessed by eternal life is the, that the way that Jesus had upon the cross. So faith is the key that opens up the doors. 
And it has already been pointed out that believers today enjoy the rest of their conscience because they know that they will never be brought into judgment by their, starts with an S, sin. It's great, isn't it? Do you know that you can rest tonight? You can have the best sleep of your life. Are you ready for it? You're not going to burn in hell. Isn't that good news? I don't want to oversimplify it. But the whole smoke, the burning, the complete uh, removal from the presence of God and his grace and his love, tonight you can have good rest knowing that I'm in his rest because I believed in his finished work upon the cross. Think about this. They're thinking, well, maybe I should start doing works again. Are you going to get good rest in that? No. Are you going to try to say that, well, if I do this and this, God will love me more? He can't love you more than he already does. So we have rest because we know that our sins were judged on the cross. But it also is true that those who believe are the ones that will enter into God's final rest in glory. So we have two things that are good for us as believers. We rest in the finished work of the cross, and then we rest in the fact that we will be with him for eternity. And that's just amazing. Not only that, can I blow your mind? You're going to get rewards in heaven for the things that you do here. And that's where James talks about, I can show you my faith by my works. He says, my works don't save me, but when I get saved and I realize what God has done for me, I want to give back to him. I want to see the kingdom of God further. I want to see kids come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. Therefore, I'm going to serve because Jesus served us. He is our example of the great servant. And so for us, we have this double blessing and the writer of the Hebrews is trying to just, you ever Have that person where you just want to shake them? Oh, I'm the only sinner in the room. And you're like, why aren't you getting this? Why are you trying to, like the guys at the Roto Emmaus, why are you going back to whatever that was? You're leaving the best for what? And sometimes it even boggles your mind. You're like, I don't get it. Just stay here in amongst God's people where there is love and there is patience (laughs) with some of us. Let's keep going. If I only knew where I was. Four. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in that God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. And again in this place they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter it because of what? Disobedience. So the whole idea of the seventh day was that God worked for six. He created the seventh day for man to have the communion with man, to show man that you work and then you what? You rest. He was showing man this pattern. And this pattern was going to be that you will enter into a rest with. But notice it says, to whom it was first preached, but they did not enter it because of disobedience. 
because of what they did in the wilderness. Again, the spies, they did not listen. They allowed the voices to determine their path rather than God's word, God's spoken word to them. Did God not just bring them out of Egypt, provide for them manna, water, right? Was there not a mountain shaking? Did they not see the smoke and the thunder? Did they not hear the audible voice of God? All of that, yes. And then they go, yeah, but those guys are really big. Doesn't that seem dumb? Now, before we get down on the Israelites, we often do the same thing. So he says, again, this is a warning to them and to us because of disobedience, because of unbelief. And again, he designated in another place, verse 7, saying, in David today, after such a long time as there has been today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. 500 years after they come into the land of, uh, with King David, he says it again, which leads us to believe, right? It would be easy for the Israelites to think, well, I've come into the land, so I'm in. But God is showing them a, few, a further rest, which would be in Messiah. So you're in the promised land, great, but there is one more to go, and that's Jesus. And he's going to make that point here. Notice in verse 8. No, let me, let me do the, the end of verse 7 again. Uh, saying, in David, today after such a long time, as it, as it has been said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So the warning to David was the same warning that God gave them in the wilderness of be careful of your unbelief and be careful of the hardening of your heart. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. That's exactly what I just said, which is getting into the promised land and as there's a rest in there, but there's a future to come. The promised land was just one step in a long line of what God was already doing. And did you already see that from the foundation, verse 3 of the world? It was all laid out for them. Just like us, Jesus came at the exact right time. Now, verse 9, therefore, I'm sorry, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Before we were saved, we may have tried to work for our salvation, and that's just real easy. We tried to be good, right? Remember when they said, good master, what must I do? And he goes, why do you call me good? There's no one good, no, not one. He was making a point, Jesus was, that you can't be good. Don't you love that of people today? They're still using that. 2,000 years later, well, I'm not as bad as that guy. What's your measuring stick, Jeffrey Dahmer? That's easy. Now, kids won't even know who that is. They'll have to Google. Don't Google that, by the way. Let me bring that one right down. (laughs) Before we were saved, a lot of us tried to work our way into heaven, just like the Jews. When we realized that Christ had finished the work at Calvary, 
We abandon our worthless efforts and trusted in the risen Redeemer. Remember when you figured out, maybe it's tonight, that you don't have to do these things so God would be pleased with you? Oh, it's such a burden. That's why he uses the word rest. Isn't it exciting to know that you don't have to do X, Y, and Z? You don't have to do these sacraments. You don't have to do this or that to get. You don't even have to be a part of a particular church that so many teach today. You just have to accept this carpenter who is the Christ, the Messiah. That's good news. Well, I wish more people would hear that that are in denominations and religions today, world religions, trying to be good, trying to be Christmas and Easter Christians. It's not going to work, is it? They're going to get a rude awakening when they come up. Jesus say, I'll never, I never knew you. Depart from me, those workers of iniquity. Two things you're going to hear. That or well done, good and faithful servant. Take a guess which one you want to hear. After salvation, again, we allow ourselves to, because of the love of God, do good works and to serve other people. By doing that, we show that we are using the gifts of the Holy Spirit in our life. We see that the Holy Spirit is operating because we are becoming like our boss, which is a servant. I talked about this just briefly, but Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. We have no concept of what that means in 2021. No concept. Now, you go with me to India or to Nepal where they don't have closed-toe shoes and you walk into some areas that have um, sewage flowing right there, animal dung everywhere, and people walking in the midst of that, then you might have an idea of what was it like for Jesus to get down, to gird himself and to wash the feet of the disciples, let alone Judas. In God's eternal rest, we shall cease from our labors down here, which is just awesome. This doesn't mean that heaven will just be one big cream cheese commercial. Does anyone get that? Or am I the only one? There used to be an old commercial where it was like this bagel and this cream cheese, and that's what heaven was like. Clouds filled with glorious cream cheese. We're going to have to show old commercials. Can't even get the references here. Sometimes people think that heaven is going to be really boring. Like, what are we going to do? You know what? I have no idea. Does that bring you hope or not? You're like, uh, maybe we should try another church then, uh, if you don't know. When we get to Revelation at the end, we're going to see this. It says, behold, I make all things new. Nobody knows what that means. Nobody knows what eternity will mean after that. We will have a reference here on planet Earth. We will see this Earth. We will see it through the thousand-year reign. It will look a little different. 
but at some point this earth will melt away with a fervent heat as well as the galaxy that we know. What we know now will not be what, what is to come. So that's pretty exciting, isn't it? So this new eternal rest is coming that we will, of course, be worshiping Christ and the Father. And so he says in verse 11, Let us therefore be diligent to enter into that rest. That means it is our responsibility that we have this opportunity right in front of us and that we diligently seek Christ. Notice, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Listen to what the writer is trying to say. Don't do what the children of Israel did. Your forefathers, to which you want to go back into that same religious system, don't do that. We must be diligent to make sure that our only hope is in Christ Jesus, not in churches, not in denominations, not in anything else. It must be only in Christ. We must diligently resist any temptation to profess faith in anything else other than Jesus. Any alliance. Listen, I don't want to even go down this, but there's a certain group of people that says, if you're not part of our church, you can't enter into heaven. That's not what the Bible says at all, let alone the sacraments that you have to do. That's not in there either. And yet, millions of people are still going along with that plan. The Israelites were careless. They treated God's promises lightly. Remember uh, only days out of Egypt, they had a hankering to go back for the leeks and the onions? Remember that? Like, wow, I remember how good it was in Egypt. Well, forget the like whips and the beatings and the killings all of that, but, you know, the food was really good. Do you see how really blinded people can be and can stumble over that? And so he tells us that we need to be diligent. They were not diligent in remembering God's promises by faith. And so, as a result, that generation never reached Canaan. They never reached the promised land. So, Therefore, let us be diligent. All right, verses 12 through 16, obviously, as we'll see here in a minute, maybe if you've never studied Hebrews, some of the most powerful verses in all of the Bible. These are underlinable verses. These are verses we want you to remember. These are powerful verses, and the writer builds on the fact that Israel should have listened to God because God's word is what? It is living, and it's powerful. It's dynamic. He says, verse 12, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the divisions of the soul and the spirit. That means everything that's in you, nothing can be hidden. He'll say that at the end. The joints and the marrow, and is the discerner... (laughs) Of the thoughts and the intent of the heart. We'll get to that one because that's funny. So these next verses, 
give us this warning that unbelief never goes undetected. Why? Because God sees everything, and his word is a, um, it's like a scalpel. It gets in, and it just knows. So the word of God, um, it's interesting. The word of God here is not the same as logos that John uses. This verse refers to the living word, Jesus. It is, it is the written word that Jesus declared unto man. It is the word that when you open it up for the 18th time in that chapter, you open it up and you're blown away that you never saw that before. I got to tell you, I find it very exciting to teach. Why? Because a a lot of times when I come up here, you know, uh, it's funny, my radio program, Boldly Speaking, says in the tagline that Pastor Ron is directed by the Holy Spirit during his weekly teachings. That is what I, I pray goes on each week. And God oftentimes, like literally standing here, right into my head. Like, I don't even know what that is, but I'm just declaring it. And we're going to see, for the most part, it is for somebody in the room that I don't even know what's going on in your life, but God is targeting you. So make sure I can't see you in the front rows because it's coming. Notice that it is the Word of God. Number one, it's living. It's constantly living. It's actively alive, which means this isn't a book of stories. This isn't a book that's dead. This isn't a book that's not relevant. It is so relevant. Would we not agree through the book of Chronicles that we were going through during the election time? I was cracking myself up. How appropriate it is to look at the lives of these leaders and then look at our own nation and go, you guys are like fulfilling Chronicles. God does that all the time. Where we are in his word is appropriate for where we are in and on planet earth at any given time. And that is not planned by me. You might come and go, oh, he planned that ahead. It's like four weeks he knew he was moving some stuff and he went faster this week so he could slow down. That does not happen with me. It is where we are. Oftentimes when I start to go and reread what I'm going to do for the next week, I myself start laughing. This is awesome. Look at what just happened in the news. Wait till they hear that on Sunday. Now, it's very exciting. Why is that? Because it's living and it's powerful. No wonder the writer of Hebrews can say that this Bible isn't a collection of old stories and myths. It has an inherent life and power. The pastor doesn't make the Bible come alive. The Bible is alive. I'm just on the ride. I don't need to make it come alive. It's already alive. Listen, now yes, could a, could a pastor or a preacher put you to sleep? Absolutely, I see it every week. Part of my role is to keep you going in the passage because sometimes, right, it's like, all right, I'm full. And I use humor and I use these illustrations to keep us going. But 
I shouldn't have to do that because the, the word is so alive. And if you pray before you get here, Lord, would you just open up my heart today? Whatever you have for me. You know the week I had. You know that boss. You know that coworker. You know that child in my life. That You know whatever's going on in my life. Would you use your word tonight to heal me, to refresh me? Because it's living, it'll happen. And because it's powerful, it's energizing. I know I use this a lot. I know I do. Whatever your week has been, it's Wednesday, it's 5.30, it's 6. (laughs) You're thinking, man, I've had a week. I just want to go home and have lasagna. And I'll just turn on Pastor Ron and sit in my pajamas. And you, We all have that conversation, and I'm looking at you right now. <laughs> Save me a piece of that. But then you, you kind of push through that pain because God says, hey, you need to be around the, my people. And you drag yourself in, and you plop yourself down. And then the worship goes, and then you kind of, get a little straighter, and then we start reading God's word. And what does it do to you? It energizes you. It gives you what you need to keep going in this world that is bonkers and doesn't make sense. Not only that is, it's cutting. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, because the writer, I believe it was Paul, he like to use military terms in his illustrations, the reason why the Roman uh, army was so effective and dominated was because of this one weapon that they carried, which was the double-edged sword. No other um, army had this. Typically, they would have a longer sword, but the Romans would have something that was uh, 18 to 24 inches long, Maybe you've seen them at a, at a museum, very big hilt on it. They can grab it really well. It's got a piece of metal there. But most swords were only cut on one side. And the Romans, they, no, no, they knew that if they had something that can cut on both sides, then as they thrust in, they would do maximum damage. Most of the Roman soldiers would carry a pike or a pole and the shield, and that double-edged sword was in their sheath, And they only used that when they were in very close contact. And that's how they dominated the world in their time. It was very sharp. It was cutting. (laughs) No show of hands. Don't you love you walk in, whatever you're dealing with, God's word is being poured out, and it just cuts you down. Now, as a surgeon uses a scalpel to cut out that which is dead, or that which is hurting your body. That's what God's word does. The Bible talks about how God uses it to prune us so that we produce more fruit. I'm sure if we asked the apple trees at your house if it liked to be pruned, they would say no. But you're thankful that they are, so they produce more fruit. Not only that, not only is it cutting, but it's dividing. Notice it says it's piercing the soul and the spirit. Two parts of mankind, the soul and the spirit. 
It pierces the joints and the marrow, the joints permitting the outward movements. The marrow is the hidden in the vitalness of the bone's life. It gets to every part of your life. That's the point of it. Don't dig deep in those words. The point is the word of God is like a sharp two-edged sword, and it will take care of anything that's in your life, no matter what. Nothing hidden. If you allow it to come in. I I love this image of the two-edged sword because Jesus in in Revelation, it says, out of his mouth comes a two-edged sword. Not only that, but it's discerning It says, it judges the thoughts and the intents of the heart. It is the word that judges us, not we who judge the world. This is kind of a hard thing that we have to learn as believers. It is not our job to judge this world. It's not our job to judge anybody else. Now, Jesus does say in that chapter that says, judge not lest you be judged, right? Remember that Sermon on the Mount? If you drop down below it, he does say that we are to be fruit inspectors, which means we should be able to see in your life, if you call yourself a believer, that we should be able to judge if you are a believer or not. But we don't judge God's word judges. That's the greatest thing about letting God's word do it. Now, Jack, Jack, you're... Jack used to live in Las Vegas, and I can't remember which pastor it was in Vegas, but he said this at a conference one time. He goes, we, we would get showgirls into the church. Now, they wouldn't have the whole costume on. Calm down. <laughs> but he said they would come up every once in a while, and he wouldn't, he, he knew, I mean, it's Vegas. He knew what was coming in the doors, and he wouldn't specifically just preach on that. He would just say, I just let God's word go out. And eventually they would come up and say, Pastor, do you think I should, like, quit? He would, well, what do you think he would say? Uh, yes. But he let God's word do it. He didn't judge them. I don't care who you are, what your lifestyle is as you walk in the door. If you sit here for any length of time, and I mean honestly sit here, you will leave that sin or you will leave this church. That's the great thing about Calvary. <laughs> You will either eventually have God prune that out of your life or you will, you will get out of here. And you can go down to wherever and that church won't talk about whatever's going on in your life. And you can sit there. But here, we believe in this chapter. Hence, you can, you can see why I'm, why I'm spending so much time on this section. Because this is what Calvary Chapel is about. It is about, let's read it, Giving God's living and powerful word every single week. It pierces even the divisions of the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow, and the discerner of the thoughts and the intent of the heart. And notice it says, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to his eyes, to whom we must give an account. No show of hands, but... It would be fun to know this. How many of you came here for the first time or a couple of times later? And I'm teaching. And you're like, how does he know that about me? Is there like some recording device he's got at our house? Is there some kind of like direct pipeline from God to the pulpit? And he gets text messages from 
<laughs> from the Holy Spirit that says, Sean's dealing with this. Talk about it. Okay. You ever had that happen where you're sitting in a service and that's exactly what you are dealing with at that moment? Now, listen, we're dealing with, on a Sunday morning, 180 people coming in to our services and everyone is dealing with something. And you know what's amazing? For the most part, everybody is getting something. And it's not always the same thing. Isn't that awesome? That one message can affect that many people in your particular point of life, in your area. Why? Because nothing is hidden from the king. Not only that, is it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intent of the heart. God knows what's going on with you. He, you can't hide it. And I'll tell you, at some point, I'm going to be talking about it. And you're going to like, did my wife talk to you? Did my boss call you? No, because this book is living. And I don't know about you, but I love that it's 2021 and it's still relevant today. This is a living book. This isn't a book that we just put on the shelf and it's like Homer's Odyssey. This is a powerful book that is able to change your life if you would just open it and read it. Give God a chance. He says, there's nothing hidden from his sight but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must, notice that, give an account. Now, the good news is because our sins have been judged upon the cross, we now give an account for what we've done in the body of Christ, our works that are pleasing to him. We don't give an account for our sins. Those who haven't accepted Christ they're going to hear, what did you do pertaining my son, Jesus? Did you accept him or reject him? Well, you know, I gave money to that, that tsunami fund. I worked as a volunteer at the... But what did you do pertaining my son, Jesus Christ? Unbelief is detected by the living God. We need to remember and stay in context that he's talking about unbelief. So, our God, the creator, the king of the universe, as the Jews say, which I love that phrase, the king of the universe. He knows. He can spot unbelief. He can spot it in this room right now, your doubts, your fears. He can spot yours sitting at home. He knows where you are. So, if he knows where you are, why don't? Why don't you let him minister to your heart? And listen, the only way that is going to happen is by this. Or by turning a radio station on that is teaching God's word. That is how we hear from God. Verse 14. Now, he's going to change and he's going to now take us into a theme that he's already talked about. He's already talked about high priests before. He talked about Moses. Now he's going to take us into this idea of the high priest with Aaron's line. Remember that Jesus has been telling, or the writer's been telling us that Jesus is better than the angels, than Moses, right? And now he's going to tell us that he's better uh, than, the, than the Aaronic priesthood. But before he does that, he just tells us right in the beginning who is our high priest and what does he do? 
seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. And in case you didn't know who it was, the writer tells us, Jesus, that's his humanity, Yahshua, Joshua was his name. He is the Son of God, that's his divinity. You have his humanity and his divinity in that verse. The writer is saying, this is the high priest we have because all of the other high priests only have humanity. They don't have divinity. Now, because he has humanity and divinity, he is that much greater. Everybody got that? That is what the theme is, that he is better, that he is greater. So Jesus, the Son of God, who uh, uh, let us hold fast to that confession, that he is the Son of God. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but in all points tempted as we yet without sin. So we have a high priest. We have this great high priest who is the Son of God and man, but he understands what we've gone through. We must consider his experience, Jesus on planet Earth, those 33 plus years. No one can truly sympathize with someone else unless he or she has gone through that same similar experience. Amen? You can empathize, but you cannot sympathize. Maybe you've gone, we've all gone through this. You've gone through something and someone comes up and says, I know what you're feeling. And you look at them and go, you have no idea what I'm feeling. Because you haven't gone through it. You can empathize, but you haven't walked a day in my shoes. Therefore, you don't have to, you can't sympathize with that. And yet Jesus, because he is the high priest, he has gone through everything that we have gone through, but he didn't sin. So therefore, he is able then to strengthen us through that time. As a man, our Lord had shared our experiences and therefore can understand the testings that we endure. But he did not. Please note that at the end there. In all points. How many are all points? All points tempted as we are, yet without sin. It's funny, it says, we are yet. Those are in italics. So if I read it this way, <laughs> in all temptation as without sin. That's Jesus. He was, in, he was tempted in all ways, yet without sin. And then here it is, verse 16. So knowing all of that, knowing that we have the rest in Jesus, knowing that he knows when we are falling into the trap of unbelief, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. L listen to this gracious invitation extended to draw near with confidence. Our confidence is based on the knowledge that he died to save us and that <laughs> he lives to keep us. Not only did he save us, but he says, Father, I won't lose any that you have given me either. Isn't that good news? He ain't going to lose you. Sometimes we feel that way, but that's us, not him. Guys, in the Old Testament, that's why this verse is so 
uh, powerful. Nobody was allowed to go behind that veil except for the high priest and only one time a year. So when he says, come to the, the throne of grace, you got to think of the idea of that Ark of the Covenant, right? The Raiders of the Lost Ark Covenant, right? You got that Ark there. The only one that could go beyond that veil was the high priest, and only one time a year could he do that. And now what does the writer say? Listen, you can go back to the old system. You can do that, but you can't do what we get to do which is come boldly to the throne of grace. You see, the Jews did not think of God, and I mean the Father, as the Father. They wouldn't say Father. That was not in their vocabulary. But Jesus kept bringing that in. Our Father, who art in heaven, right? He brought us to this new relationship with our father. And the relationship is this. You get to walk into dad's office anytime because you are a son of the most high God. You are a daughter of the most high God. Guys, who gets all access to my office? Bill does. Sorry. And Tom does. No, my kids do. Do they not? They're my kids. They get full access to me. Just like any parent, your kids, they don't need an appointment to talk to you. Your dad, your mom, at any time, if they're hurting, they can come to you. Is it not all of that as a parent? When do they come to you? When they're hurting, when they're crying, when they put a crayon in their ear. Our kids do some really dumb things. Yes, thank you, Ian. Uh, I notice your wife's not in here, so I'll keep that down. Isn't that funny that we know that our earthly kids do really dumb things and our heavenly father sees us doing really dumb things all the time? He's like, what, really, another crayon? Really, another ear you lopped off that I have to go and repair? (laughs) You need how much? How much grace do you need today? How much mercy do you need today? Again, this is not something the Jews would ever experience. This is not something that they could even comprehend. And don't you love how the writer says, okay, you guys want to go back to that? Go right ahead. But you don't get what we get, which is full access. (laughs) I have a media pass because we own a radio station. And it's got my name on it. It's got my little photo on it. And it says media on it. But somewhere on that tag, it says all access. Because, oh, I know. Everybody, oh, I didn't know you were really that fancy. Can I hang out with you? No. (laughs) Having a media pass, well, I say should, should allow me to go anywhere I need to go. It, it gives me all access because I am a part of a essential, I know these words crack me up now uh, through 2020, but it's essential that we have a free press. That's what our founders wanted. And they wanted the press to have that access. So imagine that we know that in our world, but 
imagine when you got saved, every one of you, it says children of the Most High God, all access. Isn't that great? Don't lose it. Always have it with you. And here is the, the kind of the writer just shutting down the argument of going back, although he continues it for, right, for the next eight, nine chapters here to continue this idea. But he says, therefore, let's come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. G. Campbell Morgan wrote of this phrase, in time of need, and I want to read it to you. He said, I never tire of pointing out that the Greek phrase translated in the time of need is a colloquialism of what is called in the nick of time. So we would translate it in the nick of time. He says, that is the exact equivalent of the phrase in the time of need that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in the nick of time. (laughs) Grace just when and where you need it the most. You are attacked by temptation, and at the moment of assault, you look to him, and grace is there to help you in the nick of time. There There is no postponement of your petition until that evening hour of prayer, he says. But there is the city street with the flaming temptations in front of you. He says, turn to Christ with a cry for help, and that grace will be there in the nick of time. Great old writer, G. Campbell Morgan. Don't you love that? You can call out to God in the nick of time, in your time of need. So why in the world... Would you ever go back? That's what the writer is trying to say. This is all the benefits that we have in Christ. Why would you go back? Why would you leave this to go back? Read ahead next week into chapter 5, Lord willing, and on Sunday as we finish the book of Luke. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your powerful, living, insightful, discerning word. We thank you, Lord, that we can come boldly to the throne of grace. Lord, in the nick of time, be blessed when we don't deserve to be blessed. That's the whole idea of grace. Thank you, Lord, that we were in the nick of time able to have service tonight. We thank you, Lord, that you're you're always in front of us, that we should not worry. We thank you. Father, for your love. We thank you that we should just trust in you and not in our works. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to rely upon religion, but this relationship with our Father, Abba, Father. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. We pray again that you would bless this Sunday. Lord, a time of both services together time of rest and refreshment, Lord. Even though it's the world's day of Valentine's Day, Lord, but you demonstrate love, not by chocolates, not by hearts, but by the cross. So, Lord, we thank you. And we thank you for our time tonight in Jesus' name.
Amen.